I want to back up and I want to clarify a comment I made last week. Um, I, uh, I was quoting last week from uh, Betty Friedan or Frieden's book, The Feminine Mystique, which was a groundbreaking book. And uh, it's a book I don't like. And, and I <laughs> kind of made that clear. But, uh, and I made a statement that I'm going to back up on just a little bit. I, I, just a little bit. Because I got a little too far out there. And, and I shouldn't have gotten that far, the statement that I made. If you were here, you know what I'm talking about. If you weren't here, I'm certainly not going to tell you what I said. <laughs> but, you know, my wife informed me. Mary told me something very interesting. That Betty Friedan, I basically said that book had done an unbelievable damage to motherhood. And I think that's true. Um, but apparently, um, she, years later, uh, regretted the influence that book had in regard to mothering. And uh, she did not take it as far as other feminists uh, took that issue. And uh, so in fairness to her, I have to acknowledge that. And uh, anyway, I, I probably got too, I didn't probably, I got too far out on that one. So um, I usually have to do this six or seven times a week. Mary just keeps notes and hands them to me. And <laughs> anyway, so let's see. We got the Arkansas people taken care of. I basically called her a Nazi. What else do we have? I think that's it. All right. <laughs> let's pray. Not because you need it, because I need it. Well, Lord, we do come to you. We thank you that... You're there. We thank you that you're aware of us and our uh, humanity. We're uh, grateful for your mercy and grace. And Lord, we're touching on some topics that uh, cut real deep because uh, we, we live in a world that is so... Um, it's so huge... In, in the sense, not of its size, but in the sense of its um, strength of influence. Uh, the world system is so contrary. It is contrary to you and to truth and to holiness and to what is right and good and clean and moral. Um, and we are inundated with this on a constant basis. So again, we look to you and we look to your word on how we should live our lives. That's why we're here tonight. Uh, we hold everything up to the word of God and we want to be like uh, the Bereans who were, uh, who were more noble than the Thessalonians because they took everything Paul said and they held it up to scripture and, and they checked it out. They tested the spirits. Now, may we be those kinds of people, we pray tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our, uh, our, our topic for this thing has been overcoming overload. And uh, we don't need to rehearse tonight all the facts that, uh, that we know that tell us we're overloaded. It's just life. It's, it's the pace. It's the... Uh, uh, it's the day in which we live. It's the culture in which we live. I read today 
that there are 110 million cell phones that are activated in America. About 90 million of them in this church. <laughs> there's a, right up here on this pulpit, there's a, there's a tape, uh, masking tape, and on it says, remind them to turn off cell phones and pagers. That wouldn't have been on here 10 years ago. But it's, it's just about any way, you do a funeral, you've got to remind them. Because, because it's so much a part of our... Oh, and by the way, there are 24 million cell phones just uh, hanging around that are deactivated. But they're everywhere. Um, so there, there is... Uh, we're, we're overloaded because we're, so, we're all so accessible. Uh, life is fast. Uh, life is full of responsibilities. We've said this before, we're saturated people. And so we're looking to find some solutions. We're looking to find a better way to live because I think the Phillips translation takes Romans 12 and says, don't let the world pour you into its mold. Uh, New American Standard basically says, uh, don't be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. We talked last week about being spiritually minded. We've come up with some principles on how to avoid being overloaded. The first one was uh, you need a sovereign. Uh, we, we need to return to the sovereignty of God and the greatness of God because when we understand how great God is, is and how big he is and how vast he is, then uh, that lets us, that gives me perspective. That gives me an arsenal, an arsenal to fight against the three big lies of our culture, which, is, uh, which are, uh, you can have it all, you can do it all, you deserve it all. Uh, God has it all because God is sovereign. Uh, our second principle, which really should have been our third, but we put it in second place, uh, was you need a Sabbath. Not only do you need a sovereign, but you need a Sabbath. Uh, a Sabbath is, uh, is, in a week, is, is a day of rest. And we get that because God modeled it for us. Uh, God built into the calendar of Israel different Sabbaths so that they could rest from their work and worship and, um, and um, not go about business, uh, but, but to take a break and to focus on him, and to enjoy others. God built that into the calendar. So that's the second thing. Uh, the third thing is you need to be spiritually minded. If we're going to live the way God wants us to live, and not the way the world wants us to live, we got to be spiritually minded. Simply which means that to be spiritually minded is to run your life through the grid of Scripture. In every single area of life, as we make uh, choices, and as we make decisions, and as we... Let me ask you something. Where are you in life? How many of you are in your 20s? Anybody here in their 20s? Good. Good. Yeah, and some of us have dementia in here. But that's okay. That's the joy of being out of your mind. Uh, if you're in your 20s, uh, you've got big issues in your life because you're just getting started in life. 
uh, you're laying a foundation for the rest of your life. The decisions that are made in the 20s, to a great degree, will determine the quality of your life in your 50s. That's a scary thing. So when you're in your 20s, you want to be spiritually minded. You want to be thinking about life and the decisions that you make, not based on what your peers are doing, but based on what the Scripture says. So you're in your 30s, same thing. In your 40s, 50s, 60s, we're on and up the line. If you're in your, if you're in your, your 70s and you're thinking about life, how is it that you make decisions now that you're at that place of life? You, you make it by being spiritually minded through the grid of Scripture. But that means you're always going against the current. You're never going with the current. Because to go with the current is to be worldly minded. And that's where we get in trouble. That's where we get bad um, influences. That's where we get bad advice. That's where we get bad counsel. And we said last week uh, that if you're spiritually minded, people that don't know Christ will think you're crazy. They'll think you're out of your mind. And even a lot of people who do know Christ. Because they know him, but quite frankly, they're not living according to the Scriptures in certain areas of their lives. Now, we all fall short. We all know that. Um, but as best we can, this is what we want to be going to the book. We want to be going to the Scriptures. Somewhere in the last, in, in August, whether it was here or Sunday morning, at some point, I think I gave the, um, I told you about getting home on a Sunday and getting, cleaning out the car, just, you know, grabbing my Bible, Mary's Bible, we had two years worth of church bulletins back there. <laughs> and I'm grabbing everything, and I go to grab Mary's Bible, and Mary's Bible literally split. It just fell apart. And I remembered Spurgeon's comment, um, which I don't remember now. <laughs> but on that day, I sure remembered it. It just came right to my mind. Spurgeon said, a Bible that is falling apart is usually owned by someone who isn't. That was worth telling, wasn't it? That got almost as big of an ooh as my Betty Friedan quote last week. <laughs> Only that one's better. A Bible that is falling apart is usually owned by someone who isn't. Why? Because they're spiritually minded. Now tonight... Here's our next one. So far we have, uh, you need a sovereign, you need a Sabbath. Uh, what's the third one? You need to be spiritually minded. Tonight, tonight what we've got is, you need a sanctuary. To overcome overload, you need a sanctuary. Uh, now, what is that all about? I was uh, reading a brochure today about um, a ministry called Roaring Lamb. Some of you are familiar with this ministry. Based on the ministry of Bob Briner and a book that he wrote, uh, Bob's now with the Lord, but he impacted a lot of people. Uh, Bob Briner said it's time for believers to confidently carry their faith with them into the marketplace so that our culture feels the difference. And uh, Bob taught a whole lot of stuff about that. And he talked about being a roaring lamb, very unique picture. And they've got some guiding principles. And I was looking at them, and they're very good. Listen to what they say a roaring lamb would be. 
Uh, a roaring lamb is a person who presents positive solutions that point people God's way. A roaring lamb recognizes responsibilities and acts accordingly. Uh, a roaring lamb stays awake, stays alert, and says thanks. It's good stuff. Uh, a roaring lamb is positive, proactive, prepared, and professional. A roaring lamb supports the good and refuses to support the bad. Now, he's talking about being in the marketplace, being in the workplace. That's tough to do sometimes. Support the good, refuses to support the bad. Roaring lamb uses individual talents and abilities in appropriate ways. Goes the distance to make a positive influence in the world. Shows respect for human life, dignity, and rights. Demonstrates honesty and integrity. Tells the truth. Replaces evil with good. Builds people. Helps others grow. Now that's good stuff. What struck me about this and about these characteristics of someone who's integrating their faith into their workplace is this. Someone who is doing that is not a person who is always with people. You can't always be with people all the time and have those kind of traits in your life. You can't do it. In order to have those kind of traits, you've got to have a sanctuary. Now, what is a sanctuary? Um, well, we know from the Old Testament, the sanctuary is where the presence of God was. Uh, you've got the tabernacle in the Old Testament. Uh, then they built a temple. And you had the presence of God in the tabernacle and in the, and in the, uh, um, uh, in the temple. Uh, they had the Ark of the Covenant. It's where the presence of God. You would go to the sanctuary because that's where the presence of God was. In the New Testament, you've got a shift. Uh, the shift that occurs in the New Testament is, is that now the sanctuary is not a building. The sanctuary is people. Because the Holy Spirit now dwells within us. He lives within us. Uh, that, that's, that's an amazing thing. So there's a, there's a shift. Um, the sanctuary has changed because now God lives within us. He lives within people. Um, but when we talk about a sanctuary, we are talking about when you know God through Jesus Christ and His Spirit lives within you. There is something within you that desires to go and meet with Him alone. That's the concept of a sanctuary. I, I quoted from David Wells last week. And I want to touch on what Wells had to say just one more time, because he sets it up so well. It was David Wells who talked about the world and the three aspects of, of the world and what the Bible means by world. Um... First of all, it talks about, when the scripture talks about the world, it speaks of the earth. Um, we live on the earth. So this is where we are, and we are to be involved in it. Uh, secondly, when it speaks of the world, it speaks of the nations. It talks about the people groups. Jesus said, go into all the world. Uh, so we're to be involved in that way. But the third aspect, the third definition of world is not positive, it's negative. 
it is a system that is anti-God and anti-Bible. It's anti-truth. Instead of God being at the center, self is at the center. Uh, there is a huge chasm. There is a huge canyon between those who are believers in Jesus Christ and those who are not. And Wells says this. He says, there is an unbridgeable chasm between the world's moral and spiritual values and God's. So we are called to be exiles from the world. That's 1 Peter 1.1, 1, 1, that's Hebrews 11, verse 13. He says, no matter how painful that exile may be. He goes on and says, this is no easy antagonism. The deeper the chasm, the greater will be the need for the believer to, to now catch this, the greater will be the need for the believer to develop the character of a desert saint in order to preserve the vital moral and uh, cognitive intellectual differences and to avoid accommodation. Accommodation to what? To the world system, to the world thinking, which is everywhere around us and so pervasive and so influential. A desert saint. That's quite a picture. Uh, you, you know, when you, when you study church history, you find a lot of weirdness at certain times. Uh, weirdness always seems to be hovering around uh, Christianity. We take certain truths and we get them out of whack and we get them out of perspective and we can get weird. Uh, a lot of people take the Salem witch trials and they think that was Puritanism. Nothing could be further from the truth. That was an aberration. Uh, and so they, uh, Mary has been reading the Scarlet Letter and, uh, because my son had read the Scarlet Letter. So she decided they'd, you know, they'd read it together in, for a class. And uh, The Scarlet Letter was about a woman back in Puritan times that committed adultery with a pastor. And he went off scot-free and she had to wear this red letter A and all, everything that went against her. Well, there's a reason that Nathaniel Hawthorne wrote that, because he was so um, repelled by what happened at the Salem Witch Trials. Uh, and, and he took that and said, that's Christianity. Well, it wasn't Christianity. It was an aberration. Uh, that was a terrible thing. But that, that one pocket which Satan got an influence in, see, a lot of people say, oh, that was Puritan. Puritism was a wonderful thing. It was a... They were... For the most part, godly people knew the scriptures, loved God. I mean, I, I read them all the time because, because of the depth of their maturity. But that was an aberration. Uh, to me, it'd be like uh, you know, 300 years from now, someone taking a, a video of uh, Christian television and saying, of, of TBN, and saying, that's Christianity. That's biblical Christianity. Well, that's not my biblical Christianity. I don't want hair like that. <laughs> I don't want clothes like that. And I don't want doctrine like that. And, but well, well, that's it. That's not it. That's not it. Um, so we go back even further and some of these people took the concept of a sanctuary and they got so weird and they got so extreme, and you've heard about it. These guys would, uh, these guys would build towers and they'd, to get away from the world and they would climb up 300 feet 
And they would stay there for 15, 20, 25 years because they didn't want to interact with people. They just wanted to know God. That's an aberration. That's weird. Uh, they thought they were going to, quote-unquote, a sanctuary. That's not what it is. Um, what does it mean in a balanced way to be a desert saint? Um, Mary and I are working on, we're working on this stuff together. I'm just up here teaching. And um, uh, we're going to write this thing together if it ever comes out. And, and she put this down. This, this isn't my stuff, it's hers. She said, uh, I would submit that a desert saint is someone whose life is characterized by regular, purposeful withdrawal from the world, which is a Sabbath, to a desert place, which is a sanctuary, in order to derive his direction and sustenance from God. You cannot be different from the world if you never separate yourself from it. You cannot see the world objectively for what it is if you never purposefully extricate yourself to look at it from afar. Uh, you cannot recognize the treachery of the world system and its thinking if you never allow yourself to withdraw and allow God to infuse your mind with his thinking. Uh, Austin Phelps has said this. I like this. It has been said that no great work in literature or science has ever been wrought by a man who did not love solitude. We may lay it down as an elemental principle of religion that no large growth in holiness was ever, was ever gained by one who did not take time to be often alone with God. We're going to talk about... Um, see, when you go to the sanctuary, you're talking about meeting with God. Uh, when we're, when we're using the term sanctuary, we're not talking about uh, a family get-together. We're not talking about a social. We're not talking about uh, being with some close friends. We're not talking about a small group. We're talking about uh, you and the Lord meeting one-on-one. -on -one. That's what we're talking about. question is, how do we establish that in our lives? Uh, and, and should we establish it? Is there, is there a model? Is there a pattern for us to do this? Um, let me tell you up front, uh, I, I want to give you three aspects to a sanctuary. I'll just give them to you. We'll, go, we'll, we'll come back and then deal with them in depth. But I want to give them to you up front. Then I want us to look at a scriptural model, several scriptural models that, uh, that we can pattern our lives after because this is a way that we're supposed to live that we have forgotten about. And when we forget about it, we get overwhelmed and we get stressed out. Uh, because we're not designed to live like this. Three aspects for a sanctuary. Number one is solitude. A solitude. Number two is silence. Silence. Number three is stillness. Stillness. We'll come back to them. So, why would we do something like this? What's what's our what's our model? And and for some of you, you know, you're just sitting here, and you've been running and gunning all day. I mean, you're here and you're exhausted. In fact, 
You weren't even going to come. You're so tired. And you start hearing, you start hearing these words, solitude. You haven't had solitude all day long. You haven't had silence. Uh, no stillness. It's just, been, it's just been all activity. From early in the morning, and here you are. Um, I, those words are appealing to me. Those words are attractive to me. Uh, for some of us, those words uh, are not real appealing because we've become addicted to busyness. We've become addicted to, um, to activity. We have become uh, addicted uh, to people. And we cannot allow that to happen because we cannot grow if those things are in our lives. Now, now there's a balance. We need people, and we need to be active, and uh, we need to be busy. But if that is the whole sum total of our lives, we are going to be, uh, uh, we're going to be chaff, as we talked about last week. What is the chaff? It's the husk that covers the, the grain. It's the outer covering, which in and of itself is useless. There's nothing to it. The scripture uh, gives us some models of those who sought a sanctuary, who sought solitude, who sought silence, and who sought stillness. I'm just going to give you a few. Isaac, in Genesis 24:63, he went out to a field to meditate. Uh, that field became, if you will, a sanctuary. Because he went out there to think and to ponder and to meet God. Uh, so a field can become a sanctuary. Uh, Daniel, in Daniel 6.10, Daniel's home was a sanctuary because you know in Daniel 6.10 they passed this law that anybody who prayed, you know, you were in trouble. It was a felony. And Daniel, knowing full well it was a felony, uh, went home because, you see, that was his sanctuary. Opened the windows toward Jerusalem. Why did he do that? Because that's where the temple was. You see? And, and as it was his custom... He prayed three times during the day, knowing full well what was going to happen to him. But you see, that was okay with him because he was meeting with the Lord, and that spot in his home was his, it was his sanctuary. It was where he met with the Lord. Uh, he was in exile. He couldn't go to the temple in Jerusalem. Uh, so he created the sanctuary. Um, my gosh, we got all kinds of different examples uh, on this. Uh, let's go to 1 Kings 4.10. In 1 Kings, you'll see that someone constructed a little add-on uh, sanctuary. Actually, 2 Kings, I'm sorry. 2 Kings 4. There was a prominent woman, and uh, she appreciated the ministry of Elisha. And he would come by there on his travels. In verse 9, she said to her husband, actually, you pick up at the end of 8. And so it was, as he often passed by, he turned in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold, now I perceive that this is a holy man of God passing by us continually. 
please, let us make a little walled upper chamber, and let us set a bed for him there, and a table, and a chair, and a lampstand, and it shall be when he comes to us that he can turn in there. One day he came there and turned into the upper chamber and rested. Now, you could say, well, that's just a condo. That's just a, that's just in a garage apartment. That's all this is. Well, on the outside, that's what it is. But you see, see, this has to do with what's in Elisha's heart. And Elisha was a man who wanted to know God and who wanted to commune with God. And I'll guarantee you that's what happened at times in that little room. That became a sanctuary. You don't need a lot to have a sanctuary. What did they have there? I mean, it doesn't have to be Martha Stewart deal here, which, which you probably don't want anymore. But it's a table. It's a chair. It's a lampstand. Um, go to Matthew 14, verse 23. Let's go over to the New Testament. Uh, the ultimate model on this is the Lord Jesus. Matthew 14, we'll get the context, 14.22. And immediately he made the disciples get into the boat and go ahead of him to the other side while he sent the multitudes away. And after he had sent the multitudes away, he went up to the mountain, catch this, by himself to pray. And when it was evening, he was there alone. Go to Mark one thirty-five. And in the early morning, while it was still dark, he arose and went out and departed to a lonely place and was praying there. Once again, Jesus withdraws from the crowds he, he couldn't get a breath, so he had to make it a priority. He, and he had a work to do. He was active. He was involved. He was responsible. He was the Messiah. He's the Savior. But he couldn't do all of that without meeting with the Father. Here's another one for you. Luke 4, 42. You'll see the same, same concept here. And when the day came, he departed and went to a lonely place, and the multitudes were searching for him and came to him and tried to keep him from going away from them. Now, that, that last line I really like. He departed, went to a lonely place. They're searching for him. Now, let's get real honest here, and let's get real practical. This is going to be easier for you to do if your kids are up and grown and out of the house than if you've got little kids that you're raising. Because for you, you're sitting there saying, a sanctuary? Solo what? Solitude. You don't even know what that means. Uh, stillness? That, that, those, those are foreign words when you're at a particular stage of life. Uh, but it doesn't go away when, you're, when your kids get out of diapers. Um, 
because then they just enter into another phase of life, and you enter into another phase of life. There, um, there are always people. This is true for you. This is true for me. There are always people that have an agenda for my life. There are always people that have an agenda for your life. Um, and, and some of these things are, are good and they're right. Uh, others of them are unnecessary and they're, uh, they're, they're real low on the equation, but they're important to that individual. Um, we can't do it all, but there are some things we have to do. In order to keep uh, our sanity, in order to keep our balance, in order to keep our equilibrium, uh, in order to keep truth, in, in order to keep righteousness, in order to keep obedience in our lives, there are thir- certain things that we must do, and one of those is we must have a sanctuary. We have to. Um, but when you do that, they're going to be clamoring for you. And I, I love this. And they tried to keep him from going away from them. Uh, you're going to experience that. I'm going to experience that. So there are certain things that have to become uh, priorities in our lives. Last week we talked about the fact that if you're spiritually minded, you're going to set into your life um, uh, biblical priorities. And Mary and I were talking about this today. Because, see, what we're doing here is that we're talking about being overloaded. We're talking about being saturated. And, and see, what could happen here is that as we're, we're laying out some more things, those things can put you under. You go, wait a minute, those are some more things i got to do. Well, I can't do I'm already overloaded. I can't do See, I think what, what we have to look at here is say, wait a minute. There are some things in our lives we need to discard. There are some things in our you, you know, we need to have a garage sale. Spiritually speaking, we need to clean out the attic, spiritually speaking. Uh, We need to give some things away to goodwill, to the Salvation Army, spiritually speaking, because our lives get cluttered. Um, Not all of those things are necessary. Some of those things we made commitments to back at a certain point, they were good things. But you know what? They're not good things anymore. And that's where we have to sit down and assess. Because if you just keep what you're doing and say, man, I need a sanctuary, and I need to meet with the Lord, and I need all this, so you're just going to get more overwhelmed. The, the key is to, is to look at life through the grid of Scripture, and then you start discarding the things that really aren't all that important and the things that really don't count. I, I gave you that quote last week that I had just read, and I'm loving this quote. From Spurgeon, learn to say no. It will do more good for you than learning to read Latin. Why would anybody want to read Latin? But but in his day, that was a big deal. But you see, you learn to say no. That's really going to do you some good. We say no to the wrong things. We say yes to the right things. And one of those things um, is the sanctuary, is meeting with the Father, At least that's what I'm picking up from looking at the model of Jesus. He made room in his life to meet with the Father one-on-one. He was alone. He got away from people. 
Now, this is where we want to take a look at the sanctuary idea. These three things. Because you see, when we get real overloaded and you really analyze your life, it's because there's no, what's the first one? There's no solitude. There's no solitude. Um, you can't live without solitude. You can't live well without solitude. Um, Dallas Willard has uh, written a book called The Spirit of the Disciplines. And I like what he says about solitude. He says, we've already seen what a large role solitude played in the life of our Lord. In solitude, we purposefully abstain from interaction with other human beings, denying ourselves companionship and all that comes from our conscious interaction with others. Now, we do, it, do we do that our whole lives? No. We take some time, we take a certain amount of time out of the day uh, to get alone, to abstain from other people so that we can meet with God one-on-one -on -one in the sanctuary. He says this, solitude frees us, actually. This, above all, explains its priority among the spiritual disciplines. The normal course of day-to-day -day human interactions lock us into patterns of feeling and thought and action that are geared to a world set against God. Nothing but solitude can allow the development of a freedom from the ingrained behaviors that hinder our lives according to God's life. God's life. He goes on, and this is a wild illustration. He says, it takes 20 times more the amount of amphetamine to kill individual mice than it takes to kill them in groups. I had to read that three times. In other words, we tend to follow the herd. We tend... I'm not sure all that means, but it's a fascinating, I mean, it really is. It takes 20 times more amphetamine to kill an individual mice than it takes to kill them in groups. Here's something that's amazing. The same study, experimenters also found that a mouse given no amphetamine at all will be dead within 10 minutes of being placed in the midst of a group on the drug. He says, in groups, they go off like popcorn or firecrackers. See, there's something to be said. There's something to be said for not being part of the herd, and there's a herd mentality. Is this not amazing? Whenever Every Christmas, there's some new herd mentality about some toy. Right? That is... And I mean, these people are playing with us. What kind of fools are we? You know, they're sitting there at Mattel or, you know, some, and they're saying, okay, what nonsense can we come up with this year that everybody's going to think their kids have got to have or their kids are going to be deprived? Well, I, mean, I, I, I mean, it's been so long since I've done that with my kid, but those, what were those dolls, those cabbage patch? You know, or, or then they went to, some of you younger kids, you know, you know the latest, uh, that's a herd, that's a herd mentality. Um, I remember teenage mutant, what was that? 
Ninja Turtles. Oh, man, I mean, it just, you know. And I think John was, how old was he, seven or eight? So I went with him to the movie. And so then I got a doll. I got my own little teenage. <laughs> no, I, I went with him. And then, you know, towards the end, I thought, you know, this is getting pretty violent. I don't like this. I mean, this is, this is pretty rough stuff. They, they should have lightened up. And I'm sitting there thinking about it, and I'm thinking, you know what? We just ought to get up and walk out of here. And I'm thinking, you know what? Everybody's going to kind of, they're going to see me getting up and walking out. And of course, you. And I thought, well, you know what? This is nuts. And you know, I think, I know John well enough, and he hasn't been exposed to a lot of this stuff. I think this is going to disturb him. So I, I said, John, we're going to go. He goes, really, Dad? He said, well, I said, we're going. And we just took him by the hand, we got up and left. And he was upset in the car. He was really upset. He said, Dad, I can't believe he did that, you know? And it was, you know. I said, well, you know, John, I don't like the way that those guys made that movie. And that's not how we do things at our house. And that's, it's it just, I, you know, I know, I know it was hard and you'd like to see it, but you know what? There's some things you just don't sit in and watch. And he didn't understand that. And then he was talking to his friend up the street. And he told me that night, later I put him to bed and we were praying. And he said, well, you know, my friend, Dad, we were talking about it. And we were talking about, he, he, uh, it was pretty violent. And, uh. And he was there, and he kind of wished his dad had it taken and left. You see, but everybody was trying to act like it was okay. Now, I don't always do that right. I just, I'll tell you the stories when I did it right to make me look good. <laughs> you see, that's that herd mentality. Uh, <clears throat> that's just one crazy little illustration. But it's everywhere in our lives. Now, we don't want to live like that. And see, in so many uh, areas that, that are much larger, we get influenced and we get pulled in. Why? We don't have any solitude. What is solitude? So solitude is a secession of human interaction. We need a place where we can get alone. Jesus demonstrates that. Uh, Jesus uh, models that for us. Secondly, you've got silence. Silence is a secession of noise. We've got noise everywhere. Um, we don't need all that noise. There are times when we need an environment of silence. Wouldn't that be a refreshing thing? Um, it is a conscious removal of all distractions, voices, including our own. Did Jesus not remove himself from all distractions? Did Jesus not remove him from people that were trying to get to him and asking questions? How did he do that? How did he do that? Well, he did it at certain times. Sometimes he'd get up early. Sometimes, at the end of the day, he'd go do it. But he had to have that in his life. He couldn't always have social interaction. There had to be downtime. Your cell phone battery doesn't go three, four weeks. It doesn't go six months. It doesn't go a year without any problems. You gotta, you gotta recharge 
that battery. You got to plug that battery in. That's what solitude, that's what silence does for us. It plugs us in to the life of God and it reinvigorates us. It, it recharges us. Um, when we're silent, we're not talking. We're listening. guy named uh, Alan Terrain, he said this. He says, once we lived with silence, now we live with noise. We spent, Mary and I spent five days last summer in New York City. I'm going to tell you, you can have that place. And one of the things that hit us is there's no silence in this town. There's, Carol, you're shaking your head. You used to live there. There is, I mean, we'd, we'd go to, even, we even went to Central Park. It's not quiet in Central Park. There's no place that I found in New York where, where you could be silent. There's constant noise. We were not designed for constant noise in our lives. We have to have some silence. If there's perpetual constant noise, you will get overloaded. Where's my Jim Elliott? Jim Elliott said this. He says, I think the devil has made it his business to monopolize on three elements. Noise, hurry, and crowds. Satan is quite aware of the power. In the presence of God, see, then I can hear his voice. See, a big issue in life is hearing the voice of God. But if there's noise, if there's always clamor, if there's always radio, if there's always CD, if there's always rush, if there's always uh, news radio, if there's always, always, uh, I, how in the world, how do, I, how do I discern that? How do I hear it? Um, the Bible talks about silence. Psalm 62. Here's what it says. Psalm 62, verses... Um, one through five. And, and as, I, as you're turning there, perhaps some of you are, you know what I picture? Sometimes I do, uh, uh, I do radio interviews. When I'm out speaking somewhere, they'll, they'll take me by a Christian station and I'll do a, a radio interview. And, um, and a lot of times these stations, you know, I, uh, KCBI is right off the uh, airport freeway over there. I mean, cars just, <laughs> trucks going by. So you know what they do? They got that building, and then they've got some studios in there. And what they've done is they've soundproofed them. They've got this uh, foam that kind of looks like egg carton foam all over it, and they got these big, heavy, thick doors, and they got big, thick panes of glass. And maybe uh, if you're out in the reception area, you can hear the traffic going by. You can hear the trucks going by. You can hear the horns honking. But you walk into that studio, and they shut that door, and it seals. You can't hear a thing. It's soundproof. It's, it's, it's silent. Because they're going over the radio, and they don't want all that background noise. Because when you've got background noise, it's distracting to what's being said. Psalm 62, verse 1, beginning there. My soul waits in silence for God only. From Him 
is my salvation. He only is my rock and my salvation. See, right there, you know what? Some of us needed to hear that, right? That, just that one verse. He only is my rock. Because see, maybe this week your world has been rocked. And you got all this stuff coming in. See, just that moment of he is my rock. And he is my salvation. My stronghold. I shall not be greatly shaken. My soul, he's talking to himself again. My soul, wait in silence for God only, for my hope is from Him. Lamentations 3, verse 24 says this, The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore I have hope in Him. The Lord is good to those who wait for Him. To the person who seeks Him. It is good that He waits silent. For the salvation of the Lord. This uh, solitude and silence stuff, we don't talk about a whole lot. But when I meet mature believers, I find that this is a part of their lives. You're not going to find someone whose roots go down deep in Christ who doesn't have silence and solitude you're not going to find people that have uh, wisdom and have maturity that don't have a sanctuary because you see that's where the wisdom and maturity and depth comes from it comes from being in the presence of God now this isn't real exciting stuff on the surface um our world is very concerned about being bored. We want action. We want activity. We want... But you see, you've got to have the quiet. You've got to have... You've got to get in the studio and shut the door and let it seal tight and just meet with the Lord. Uh, Donald Whitney. Uh, this guy's written a great book on spiritual disciplines for the Christian life. Whitney talks about silence and solitude. You still with me there? You're very silent. I'll give you a couple paragraphs from this guy. I like him. He says this. He says, the discipline of silence is the voluntary and temporary abstention from speaking so that certain spiritual goals might be sought. Sometimes silence is observed in order to read, write, pray, and so on. Though there is no outward speaking, there are internal dialogues with self and with God. Uh, this can be called outward silence. Other times, silence is maintained not only outwardly, but also inwardly, so that God's voice might be heard more clearly. Solitude is the spiritual discipline of voluntarily and temporarily withdrawing to privacy for spiritual purposes. The period of solitude may last only a few minutes or for days. The period of solitude may... Um, I just read that. 
Uh, as with silence, solitude may be sought in order to participate without interruption in other spiritual disciplines or just to be alone with God. And he says this, three brief thoughts about silence and solitude. First, think of silence and solitude as being complementary. Without silence and solitude, we become shallow. Uh, but they are to be coupled with fellowship, because without fellowship, we become stagnant. So see, it's not silence and solitude all the time. It's silence and solitude for a period of time so that our fellowship and so that our relationships can have some depth and have some meaning and have some maturity. Um, second, he says, silence and solitude are usually found together. Third, recognize that Western cultural conditions, uh, let me back up, recognize that Western culture conditions us to be comfortable with noise and crowds, not with silence and solitude. And that's true. Um, this, this, is, uh, this is developing a new habit. This is developing a new approach to life. And if you've never done this, uh, th this, can, um, th this, can be, uh, this can be tough. Let me, read, uh, let me read a quote to you here from a guy that understands this. His name is William Bridge. And when he, he's going to use the word meditation. And by it, he means uh, focusing on the Word of God in the context of silence and solitude. Here's what he says. There are two things that make meditation hard. The one is because we are not used to it. And another is because we don't love God enough. Everything is hard at the first. Writing is hard at the first. Painting hard at the first. Meditation will be hard at the first. There is nothing not hard to those that are unwilling. There is nothing hard to those that love. Love makes all things easy. Is it a hard thing for a lover to think or meditate on the person loved? See, this is a way that we get to know the Lord. This is a way that we get to love Him, that we grow in love, that we, because we're in His presence, and He ministers to us, and He speaks to our hearts, and He comforts us. But when, when we begin something like this, it's difficult because we're not used to being quiet. Uh, it, it's, it's hard because we're not used to being by ourselves. When, um, when I'm at home and everybody's gone, it's weird. That's why people have trouble when their kids all leave. It's the empty nest. And you're still not alone. But it's different. All that activity all that action, all those phone calls, all this, it's, it's, see, it's a change. Ralph Carmichael wrote a, uh, he wrote a song years ago uh, called A Quiet Place. Um, real simple. He says, there is a quiet pace. That's not right. He says, there is a quiet place far from the rapid pace where God and soothe my troubled mind. Sheltered by tree and flower, there in my quiet hour with him, my cares are left behind. Whether a garden small 
or on a mountaintop. New strength and courage there I find. Then from this quiet place, I go prepared to face a new day with love for all mankind. Boy, there's some great theology in there. There's some great, uh, there's some great wisdom there. There's another aspect to the sanctuary. You've got uh, solitude. You have got, um, what was our other one? Silence, which you're doing very well. And then thirdly, you've got stillness. Stillness. Uh, what is stillness? Stillness is a succession of activity. It is a quieting of our own heart in which we do nothing at all except tune our hearts to listen to Him, think upon Him, and fellowship with Him. Now, this is usually hard because we want something else to do. We want a task. But before God can speak to us, we must do what the Scripture says. Psalm 46.10 speaks directly to this. Psalm 46.10 says, Be still. Or some translations say, Cease striving. Sometimes we are so active trying to make things happen. Trying to put our agendas in place and... and uh, talk with this person and this one and this one and make sure they're okay and they sign off so that this end result can happen and we get frustrated when that doesn't occur. Uh, cease striving. I mean, do what you can do. But you know what? Ultimately, that's where you got to back off and, and have a quiet time and, say you, and, and bring that to the Lord and you tell Him about it. And you get it off your chest and you get it off your heart. Um, so wait a minute, I thought this was stillness. I, I thought you were to be quiet. Th this is not a legalistic... Um, we don't have 14 steps here. But these things are going to... They're going to play a role. They're going to play a part. What we're talking about is going into the presence of God. And you know what's going to happen? Here's what happens to me when I do this. I'm, I, I, and when I, when I try to be still, I got, I got a, a legal pad. I got something there to write with. Because I, and, and I've got my Bible. And, and I'm just checking in with the Lord is what I'm doing. I want to hear from Him, and, and, I, and I want to get things off my heart to Him. Uh, and you know, you can tell Him anything. You know that? Because He already knows it. You can name names. You can tell him everything that's on your heart. If you're hacked off, tell him you're hacked off. He knows you. I mean, he's not going. <laughs> he's not shocked. He's not stunned. You he can handle it. Um, that's where, that's, sometimes you can't say it in certain situations. You can say it to him. That, that It decompresses your chest. It gets that, tell it to him. Pour it out to him. And then you can be quiet for a while. You can be still. Um, and then, and then, may, and you know what'll happen? Then all of a sudden, you'll find yourself thinking about 
that you got to get the oil changed in the car. You say, oh yeah, and then I got to run over to, I got to go, I got to go by Sam's Club, and then I got to go, oh yeah, and then I got to, and and then I got to, and then you start making your list, and all of a sudden you just go, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute, I'm praying. Wait a minute, I'm in the sanctuary. Does that ever happen to you? It happens to me all the time. My mind wanders because it's quiet and because it's still and because I'm human. And God knows that. So what do you do when that happens? I just sit. I just sit. You know, Lord, I kind of got off there a little bit. And that's what I said. And I said, where was I? Just like I'm talking to you. That's just, you know what? That's just being normal. That's just being real. That's just life. But, but, but see, you go in, you go in to his presence. Um, I, I hardly ever get through a message without quoting C.H. Spurgeon. And I got one for you. Uh, and, and this will surprise you. Spurgeon here addresses solitude for those that have not committed their lives to Christ. He says this. He says, I commend solitude to any of you who are seeking salvation. First, that you may study well your case as in the sight of God. Few men truly know themselves as they really are. Most people have seen themselves in a looking glass but there is another looking glass which gives true reflections into which few men look. To study oneself in the light of God's word and to carefully go over one's condition, examining both the inward and the outward sins, and using all the tests which are given us in the scriptures would be a very healthy exercise, but how very few care to go through it. That's not a great exercise just for unbelievers. That's unbelievable for believers. Search me, O Lord, and know my anxious thoughts and see if there be any hurtful way in me. He's in the sanctuary. He's quiet. He's still. He's not with people. He's with the Lord. You see, if we were in the sanctuary, Sunday we talked about finishing strong. I will guarantee you that people that get caught that get trapped, have not been in the sanctuary. They've not been listening. Does the Spirit of God not speak to your heart through the Word of God? We have this nerve called conscience. And what, what happens with me is, when I get off, when, when I'm short with Mary or rude to her, or I've done this or I've done that, he has a way of, of that, that conscience, with his, which is a nerve. He, he, he just sort of hits that nerve, you see. But sometimes with the noise and with the activity and with our to-do list and our palm pilots and our daytimers and all that, we just we keep going. You can't do that in the sanctuary. I'll tell you what, if you don't deal with that, when he pops you, you're not going back to the sanctuary. Because 
It's you and him one-on-one. And there's nobody else. See, it's too uncomfortable. The sanctuary keeps me from sin. The sanctuary keeps me from wrong decisions. The sanctuary keeps me from pride. The sanctuary keeps me from being arrogant. Uh, The sanctuary keeps me from hidden sin. Because I'm in his presence. And the primary attribute of God is holiness. And interestingly enough, he has called us to be holy even as he is holy. You can't do that apart from the sanctuary. You know, my, I'll be honest with you, my heart is quieted just talking about this stuff. Isn't yours? Uh, this, you know the great thing about this? The sanctuary. You know, if you're a young mother and you've got kids running around and it's not coming out of their nose and their diapers are dripping, <laughs> you're going to have to fight to get a sanctuary. But you know what? It might be when they when you put them down for a nap. Yeah, but then the other one starts screaming. I'm not going to give you pat answers here, but you may, when, when you're a young mom and you got all those kids, you, you may have to get this in bite-sized pieces. You're not going to get an hour alone with the Lord. You're not going to get an hour, an hour of, of stillness and of quiet because you're a mom and you're in the tribulation. But you won't always be there. You see? Uh, you, you, you may get up early and uh, fight traffic. And you may get up early so you don't have to be in as much traffic. Well, you know, that car can be a sanctuary. You can turn off that radio. Um, and maybe you got a verse you've written out like Todd Beamer did. You see? Busy guy. You put the word of God in your heart. And you know you're thinking about it. You're pondering as you're thinking about your day. And you start praying. You know, for what you got coming up. You know, Lord, I need you to lead me today. I need you to direct me. And uh, prepare me for what's coming today. Interruptions, I don't know that's coming. You're quieting your heart. You're in his presence. You can get the Bible on CD. Okay, a few minutes later, stick it in there. Listen to some scripture. The sanctuary is available. We just have to want it. Um, I'll tell you what's great about the sanctuary. It... uh, It renews you. It protects you. The psalmist said, in thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. That's why we meet with him. It's the place that centers us. It's the place that calms us. It's the place that assures us. It's the place that prepares us. So where will be your place and what will be your time? We can talk about this, but, but I think it'd be a big mistake if we didn't walk out of here, if you didn't have a course of action 
and, and I think, let, let, me throw these, let me throw these out to you and then we'll bring it to a conclusion. Um, where will be your sanctuary? That's the first one. Um, you know, it, it can be your, maybe there's a bench in the backyard or, you know, it's, it's your car when you're driving into work or maybe you do this during your lunch hour or, I don't know. I mean, it can be, you know, it can be anywhere. Uh, Hezekiah turned to the wall and that was his sanctuary and prayed. You know, for David, for a long time, it was the cave. Um, Daniel was his house. You just got to figure out what's best for So what will be your sanctuary? Where will it be? Secondly, when? When will you go there? And, you know, you can go there, not just once, but you can go there. You know, Spurgeon wrote a devotional, a, 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 a devotional book called Morning and Evening. Because he felt like you had to be there in the morning to start the day with the Lord. And then you ought to be there in the evening just to close it off. Probably longer in the morning than in the evening because you're exhausted. It's not a bad way to top off the day. So what will it be? And when will it be? Take your Bible. And um, maybe you just read through the Bible and maybe you get a one-year Bible. I don't know. There's no set way to do this. You just start working on it. And you just meet with him. You show, you know what? You just punch in and show up. He'll be there. So, Lord, we come back right to you. It's where we start and it's where we end. We really do get caught up in this pace. And uh, even in the church, a lot of us here are very active. And, and we, we, we love our church and we love our friends and the things that we have going on here, and we're so thrilled to be a part of a church like this. But Lord, it's possible that, uh, that even here, activity can get to be too much. Uh, we've had that happen to us in the past. Maybe it's happening to some of us now, and we have let that crowd out the best. Lord, we're just looking to live our lives in a way that pleases you. We, we don't want to flame out. We want to be consistent people. May we look at the example that Jesus set for us. We're not going to be hermits. We're not going to go live in the mountains and not see anybody. But Lord, may we take some time to meet with you and to be still and to know that you are God and let you energize us and let you minister to us. Let you bring scripture to our mind. In thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand there are pleasures forever. We believe that. In Jesus' name we pray.